Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. Alrighty, hello everyone and welcome to the Dealmaker Show. So today we have a really exciting founder. We're going to be talking about fundraising, you know, what differentiates good investors from bad investors, uh, scaling, you know, all of the good stuff that we like to talk about. So I guess without further ado, let's welcome our guest today, Bruce Smith. Welcome to the show. It is great to be here. Thank you very much for having me. So originally born in Canada. So how was life growing up? Give us a little of a walk through memory lane. Everybody was just so polite. Uh, it was really great. And then you just walk down the street. Everybody's like, lots of room. And so, uh, you know, I grew up in New Brunswick, which is really far away. Um, small town. My town was actually a sign on the side of a, a two lane highway called Prince William. And it took about 40 minutes to drive into school every day. So it was, it was super rural, like super, super rural. And, uh, honestly, I could not wait to get away. So I, I got myself to school in Montreal as fast as I could. Why, why couldn't you wait to get away? You know, I really thought that like life was happening somewhere else. And it seemed to me like our little town was provincial. Looking back, it was a great place to grow up. Honestly, like super safe, super amazing. I actually, I moved out of my parents' house in high school. Uh, I lived by myself and had an apartment and, and I had a business. I painted houses uh, to support myself and worked at a pizza joint. And um, in retrospect, it was pretty carefree. But at the time, all I wanted to do was get to the big city. And Montreal, a 10-hour drive away, was, was the big city. And from being able to uh, get out of your house, you know, at such a young age and getting other jobs. And how do you think that uh, that that all shaped your ambition and who you are today? I love starting things. I love making things. And I have a really good relationship with money. Um, I, I, you know, I, I don't like money's not an end for me. Like, I, I don't really care about being rich, but I, I just um, it's fun to make money and be able to do stuff. So from a very young age, you know, I, I started mowing lawns when I was 10. I graduated paint, to painting houses when I was 14. And then I, you know, I, I paid my way through college. I had a, a company um, both in Fredericton. And then when I moved to Montreal, I, you know, started up painting houses in Montreal, too. So I like I've been paying my my own way for a long time. And. Um, it's just really fun. I get a huge kick out of it. I think it's the funnest. You know, that's interesting that you mentioned that your relationship with money. You know, we all have a relationship with money because I think that life is the intersection between capital and people, right? Yeah. So I think that there's a lot of people that are listening now and probably wondering, hey, you know, what is my relationship with money? You know, now that I'm learning this from Bruce, what is your own relationship with money, Bruce? And what do you think people that are listening, you know, could learn, you know, from, from also what you've gotten from you and your relationship with money? I, um, when I was younger and I didn't have any money, I had this experience where I thought like, oh, if you have money, everything will be better. It's not. <laughs> it's just, it's exactly the same. If you can afford, my threshold is if you can afford a cup of coffee and a roof over your head, you're, you're doing all right. Um, the fun part about money is that it's this amazing tool that allows you to create things in the world. You know, with resources, you can bring something to life that just wasn't there before. And so it's not that um, money's an end in itself. It's that it's this tool that allows you to be creative and it gives you 
uh, the ability to bring a team together. It gives you ability to to make things in the world. You know, like um, in my old job at Community Rowing, we wanted to make our own coaching launches, like the the boats that coaches use to follow rowers out on the river. So, like we got some money, we got a grant together, and we actually like built our own wakeless launches, which was it's just so much fun. And that kind of freedom to create in the world comes from that um, relationship with money. And if you don't understand, money has its own rules and its own kind of um, necessities around the relationship. And to me, money is really like access to money is evidence of trust between human beings. And that's um, took me a long time to get there. You know, I'm 53 years old and I definitely did not have that perspective. And, and I'm, you know, I love a first class plane seat as much as the next guy, but that's really not what it's about. It's really, it's, it's really about that freedom to create. I hear you. Now, in your case, I mean, you, you did move quite a bit. Obviously, you went to Miguel University, then you graduated from that, then you moved into other cities, other places. What do you think, you know, triggered that move or those different moves that you've done, uh, you know, because you were also doing real estate, you know, you built, you know, also a marketplace in the late 90s. I guess from all these times that you've moved, I mean, I find that it's like starting over to a certain degree, new friends, new things, the unknown, uncertainty. What do you think you've gotten, you know, out of every single time that you moved and and also, why did you move? I know. Yeah, I keep. Uh, I, I view it as like concentric circles getting closer and closer to New York City, uh, which is kind of like the center of the world in some ways, you know. And so I went from New Brunswick to Montreal to Chicago to Vermont, and now I'm in Boston, and I'm I'm just a few short hours to New York. I spend a lot of time there. And honestly, like growing up in Canada, you don't really understand how the United States works and uh, just how, um, how many resources there are here. It's just, it, it, it boggles the mind. You know, it's uh, the opportunity to go to different places and live in them for several years. Uh, each place is really different. You know, Chicago is like a wildly different from Vermont and Boston is different again, but the opportunity to just absorb what the United States is really about and um, there, I think I said about, I almost said it like an American, but not quite. And uh, understanding the depth of relationship that people have here and, and how they make decisions and ultimately, you know, access to that pool of capital that is uniquely American. There's nothing like it, nothing like it in the whole world. The mobility here is radically different from the mobility in Canada. Now, in your case, rowing, you know, played a... A critical piece in your life and career. So how did you get into the whole rowing thing? It's kind of, I, I wish I could do a better Al Pacino imitation. Uh, I keep getting sucked back in. I tried, I tried to quit rowing like a bunch of times. So I started rowing at McGill. Uh, I got recruited to be on the, you know, the team at McGill. I got really involved in it. It was really fun for a couple of years. And then I tried to make the Canadian national team. I didn't make the team. Um, I thought when I moved to Chicago, I would, it was, uh, you know, the late nineties and I would go train in Chicago on my own and like sneak my way back onto the Canadian national team, uh, when everybody retired, uh, from my little group of, you know, rowers and that generation. And instead I got sucked into this coaching thing and coaching is really fun. Like it's, you know, like you get, um, depending on what kind of level you're at. So I've coached at all different levels. I coached at the high school level, coached at a Catholic school in Chicago, started a public school program in Chicago, 
uh, built a couple of boathouses there and on the Chicago River, which was like kind of an exciting experience. And um, when you get to the highest level, the national team level, uh, you get this main line and the people's like into their soul. Like I, you know, like there's no other way to say it. There's nothing you won't do to win. Like follow the rules, follow all the rules really carefully. But there are basically other than like, don't use drugs. Like there are no rules. And it's a group of people trying to do something that is effectively like completely useless in the world. So again, it goes back to that freedom. Like there's no reason to row around in boats. It's just this thing you're trying to do and you try and make it perfect. And you put every ounce of what you've got into it. And so I got, I got sucked into this rowing thing and that became very addictive to me. It was, you know, it's really, it's really, really fun to try and do that. So I went, I've been to the world championships 10 times for the United States. Um, I'd love to coach at the Olympic level at some point. Um, that's like a, you know, a dream, maybe, maybe a pipe dream. We'll see how that goes. And what, what kind of uh, leadership lessons, you know, can you take out of rowing? Because that's a lot of people, you know, that are pushing, you know, towards one direction and to a certain degree steering, you know, a company is very similar. So what have you taken, you know, from a leadership perspective out of the rowing world? Yeah, the coaching thing is, uh, coaching at the elite level is very similar to being a CEO at a company. And I would say like, so rowing is kind of a tired old trope, you know, like, oh, we're all pulling in the same direction and everybody in the same boat. And um, definitely, you know, like, um, I don't think people put posters on walls anymore, but they used to put posters of rowing. And um it's out. It's actually true. Like those, those are, um, they're not bad metaphors, uh, people working together. The interesting thing about coaching though, especially, so when you're coaching a big group of people, you have 50 or 60 boys or girls in high school, like they all do the same thing. But when you get to the elite level, when you've got eight people who have dedicated six years of their life or 10 years of their life to go to the world championships and represent their country, each person needs very specific stuff. And they're because we're all so different and, and you're doing exactly the same motion, but different people, like two or three people in the boat will need a ton of information to be able to perform. Some people need the bad news. They need to be uh, told all the things they're doing wrong because they, they want to improve. And that's the only thing that they believe And Other people really need positive motivation and being able to discern those different motivations, I think has been, um, really, really valuable as I, as I build the team here at Hydro. Nice. Now, let's talk about Hydro. At what point, because obviously you were in community rowing for about almost 14 years. Mm. At what point, you know, does the idea of Hydro come knocking? Because, I mean, you were already for a while, you know, doing the coaching thing. And so at what point do you, you know, realize, hey, I think I, I got to go for this idea? So Peloton started in 2012, and that was cool. Um, huge respect for Peloton, um, around 2013, 2014. So I was always looking for ways to scale rowing. If you could do one thing in the world to make people feel better, like if you knew what that was, you would do it. Right. So I know that rowing makes people feel better. It really does. It's super efficient use of your time, but it just makes you feel good. You know, like turning on all your muscles in that way, moving in synchronicity with another human. So I, I knew it's this thing that if we could deliver it to millions of people, the world would be at least like maybe not measurably better, but slightly better. And with that, I was watching Peloton and I knew at some point, like there's this inevitable shift 
biking is really fun and I love cycling, but it is not great exercise. And I knew from coaching, you know, like it only engages two out of seven major muscle groups. So it's just, it's not a super effective exercise. And there is this inevitable growth. You see it from CrossFit to Orange Theory. The world is eventually all going to use rowing machines for exercise in their homes because it's the best exercise. So I knew, I knew the shift was inevitable. And I saw what was happening with Peloton where they were making a really cool experience, but it had nothing to do with uh, cycling outside. And I was really worried that they would start to divorce rowing machines from this incredibly beautiful, immersive experience that happens out in the water. So honestly, we started Hydro to, to bring that experience of being out in the water into people's homes and make it accessible in a way that it wasn't before. And it was it was entirely the product of technology because it was really only 2015, 2016 that you could start to broadcast live from the water and uh, use cell phone signals. So you could take like five or six cell phones, um, you know, film in HD, break the signal apart, send it up to the cloud and into somebody's home for a reasonable price. And we looked at different solutions earlier, but that was the tipping point when the technology made it possible for us to create the system that we did at Hydro. That's incredible. Now, you know, in this case for you guys, how do you guys make money for the people that are listening to really fully get the business model? Yeah, we are a connected home fitness device and we sell you a rowing machine, which is very beautiful. It's won all kinds of awards. And then once you start using the rowing machine, you subscribe to Hydro. It's $44 a month. And uh, we have an amazing user base, uh, super committed people and, and rabid users. And I think we're one of the top five connected fitness companies in the world at this point. I mean, the design is absolutely beautiful. How did you, how did you all come up with, with the design? Uh, it is crazy beautiful. Um, we put a picture of a 1971 Maserati uh, on the wall and that car is just, you know, it's got these curves and shapes that are just to die. And we put a picture of a rowing single up on the wall, um, a Stempfli built in 1973 in Switzerland out of wood. And that also is incredibly beautiful. It's the, the rowing singles are, they're 30 feet long. They weigh 30 pounds. Even the wood ones weigh 30 pounds. And they're uh, at their widest point, they're about uh, 16 or 17 inches wide. So they're really these like little toothpicks that go along the water. And then we put a picture of a wave. And uh, we had an incredibly talented design team. A woman named Julie Miller uh, was the lead designer. She came up with four designs. Three of them looked like uh, kind of old school gym machines, you know, like that, like that you would recognize. Hmm. And the night before we had the big confab with like 12 engineers and myself and Julie and everybody sitting around ready to be like, okay, it's March. We're going to pick our design today. Um, she came brainwave, complete brainwave and designed the whole thing in one sitting and brought it in exhausted the next morning. I went to the meeting. I was like, this is too radical. I can't, this doesn't look like a rowing machine. And so I, ch I chose a different design. And uh, fortunately, the lead engineer for this uh, company, Gerhard Palaka, was like, he waited. He didn't say anything at the time. He waited. And the next day, he was like, hey, we got to get a beer. And uh, so he went and got a beer. And he was like, you're choosing the wrong thing. Um, that thing that was so beautiful, we all thought it was so beautiful. That's the one. And so that's, that's what we chose and haven't looked back. Hey, guys. So pardon the interruption here. So I got to tell you that. You know, for those of you that are either looking to raise money or you're looking to get your company acquired, 
you don't have to be alone. You know, there's a lot of psychology that needs to be blended with strategy, with methodology, with process. And it's very hard. And already doing your business alone is super, super difficult. So I remember, you know, back then when I was an entrepreneur, I kept really experiencing the challenge of either knowing or finding the right type of access to the right type of investors or really understanding what was the right type of guidance, you know, that would carry me through the process, whether it was with seeking money or with going through the acquisition. So that gap that I found being an entrepreneur is ultimately what pushed me later on when I met my co-founder at Pantera, Mike Sieversen, to really put together an advisory firm where we are guiding entrepreneurs and founding teams through the capital raising efforts, whether you are at a seed stage or at a series A stage, or if you are going through the process of an acquisition and you are in small to mid cap type of um, a cycle. So again, you know, we would help you from guiding you and, and supporting you from A to C all the way to the end as an extension of your team. And there's no reason for you to do this alone. So with that being said, if you would like to find out more, feel free to send me an email at alejandro at panteraadvisors.com. And we would love to take a look at helping you out. Now, probably, I mean, rowing, I mean, I'm, I'm like a big fan of what you guys are doing, you know, big fan of rowing, you know, people that go to the gym, you know, have their personal trainer, uh, you know, they, 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 they get them into, into, into the rowing, but it's not as popular, right. As maybe getting on a treadmill or, or, or maybe like a bike. I think yeah. eventually, hopefully, you know, I'll, I'll pick up, you know, some good momentum and it'll be right up there. But I guess for the people that are listening, what are some of the health benefits of rowing? So let's start with the bike. So you sit on the bike, it's got kind of an uncomfortable saddle and you have to adjust it in at least four dimensions to make it comfortable. And then you curl over the handlebars and uh, you take off and you're really, you're using your legs, but you're really not using any other part of your body. And your muscular skeletal system is being loaded only through the muscles. The bones are not being loaded at all. And so what that means over a long period of time is that you're not building any bone density. You're just, you're just building the muscles in your legs and some cardiovascular capacity, but it, you're building it very slowly because it's only turning on a small part of your body. With rowing, when you sit down in the boat or on a rowing machine, you are turning on literally actively turning on every single muscle in your body except the muscles above your neck. So your whole body, your posterior chain, and nobody knows that they have a posterior chain. You know, I say it in every every chance I get, but that that's the series of muscles that keep you upright, that uncurl you after curling over your screen for the whole day, that keep your uh, inner cavity of your, your body. It opens up the cavity so that all the organs in your body can do their work that gets turned on. And there just are not very many activities that do that. And the cool thing about the way that it gets turned on is that it, it applies pressure across your whole skeleton at the same time. So it introduces these little micro bends to your bones. And it's those little bends to the bones, like you can't feel them, but they happen when, you, uh, when you're running or when you're rowing, and that improves bone density. So you're loading your cardiovascular system in the most effective way you can do it. There's really nothing else like it other than maybe cross-country skiing. You're doing, uh, because it's an on-off motion, you're also creating strength 
and you're improving your bone density. And there, there's just, there's nothing else like it in terms of efficiency. So when, when I was coaching a lot, somebody would come down to the boathouse if they had an injury um, and they said, hey coach, I can't go out on the water today. I would put them on the bike for twice as long as we would be out on the water because that's what it took to catch up in terms of impact. Wow. Now, for a company like this, how did you think about the first hires and you know building that team? You know, I got incredibly lucky. My first hire was a genius named Chris Paul. He was our chief technology officer. It's kind of like fundraising, you know, like when you uh, when you need money, ask for advice. So I needed a CTO, and so uh, somebody connect some some kind of person I didn't know very well at all connected me to CP, and um, weirdly we ended up talking a lot to Chris Paul, the you know the basketball player. So uh, CP was. Um, going to help me find my first CTO. And we talked once on the phone and then he's like, Hey, let's get dinner. And then we got lunch and then we got another dinner. And then we had two more lunches. We ate seven meals together. And at the end of the seventh meal, he was like, actually, I think I want to be your CTO. And that set us on this track where, um, it was, it was really extraordinary. He's a lean and agile, uh, religious fanatic, you know, and, and he taught me really how to live lean and agile. And he's also just a brilliant engineer. And, and by hiring him, like the next five people we hired were also just amazing, amazing people. And he, he's a, you know, veteran been through, uh, seven other startups and was just invaluable to get both our culture and our product right at the same time. I mean, that's incredible because typically the CTO is the toughest role to fill, especially if you're like the business uh, founder. So right. that's absolutely remarkable. Uh, how, uh, what about, what about fundraising? Because fundraising, you know, this, this is, this sounds like a capital intensive type of business. So how much capital have you guys raised today? Uh, we have raised just about $200 million in equity and uh, some additional debt. So um, I think all in we're you know, we're approaching about $300 million, uh, in terms of capital and yeah, building hardware is not for the faint of heart. <laughs> it's really, you know, like the cycles are just so much longer. So SaaS is one thing, like you can, you can build a SaaS product, get it out, find out if it works or not with hardware, you're really committing to product market fit before you can really know. And, um, we were lucky, uh, we went, so Priority number one was going incredibly fast. So we had a prototype in six months, like a physical works, works like, looks like prototype. Uh, on June 14th, first meeting was January 4th. So that was, uh, I think, a land speed record. And also, I, I know so much about the sport and what I wanted to do that there wasn't, we didn't have to do a lot of discovery. So it, like I, I knew what we had to do right away. So that part of it helped a lot. And then on the fundraising side, um, Again, you know, maybe better lucky than good, but I had, through the course of uh, working at Community Rowing, I'd gotten to know Dick Cashin at One Equity Partners, and his nephew uh, worked at Community Rowing, and kind of unbeknownst to me, like he, he was, he, you know, he's close with his family, and he was following along with uh, what was happening uh, here in Boston, even though he lives in New York and he'd hear, you know, like uh, over Thanksgiving dinner and stuff, what, what was happening. And so we got to uh, know each other better. And, and when I, uh, told him about my idea to get this thing done, he, uh, he was the first investor and, and invested, uh, $3 million up front. So there was a huge, huge leg up and he's, you know, OEP is, he invested personally, but, um, 
OEP is one of those uh, very, you know, pretty well-respected uh, shops and got us off on the right, right foot. So it was really, that was key. And we had another great advisor, Howard Anderson, uh, who's a founder and uh, also a venture capitalist. So between Howard and Dick, and uh, we, we were able to assemble a, a small group of people who are pretty exceptional. That's fantastic. Now, good investors and bad investors. What sets the good investors apart from the bad ones? I can uh, say, people told me this before, but I've lived it now. <laughs> it's really, uh, and I can vouch for this. I made a list of the best people in hardware and connected fitness, and the very top of that list was L. Catterton. They'd invested in Peloton, um, and they were, you know, they're just so well respected. They have this incredible team. And I tried and tried and tried to get an introduction, and finally somebody, uh, uh, you know, made a really good introduction. I was over the moon because they they led our Series A, and we were the first investment I think that they had ever made pre-revenue in a company, just as a as a firm. Um, people congratulated me at the time, and I did not grasp the magnitude of what had just happened because, as the pandemic has, you know, come and gone, the the business has has really grown explosively, and we have a really great ten-year trajectory, hundred-year trajectory. But the past year has been has been really challenging, and and we were able to continue to finance and capitalize the business in a way that is setting us up for success and really great outcome for everybody. But I I know a lot of my peers in this industry have had to accept terms that are really really punitive, and um, having a great long term partner like Elcat is just it's really exceptional. Uh, it's the it's a difference maker in every dimension. And what, in terms of, you know, fundraising as a founder, do you ever stop fundraising? If I had any advice that was worth anything, it would be, if you want to start, I think everybody wants to start a business. Like, like everybody I talk to is like, oh, that'd be so fun to start a business. That you must be prepared to tell the same story three or four times a day, if not more, with equal conviction and sincerity. Um, so you're talking like thousands and thousands and thousands of repetitions. And if you can't do that, if you're not prepared to do that, don't do the business because every person you meet needs to understand what you're about. And if you can't share that and spread it uh, one by one from the, from the founder to investors, and you're going to talk to 400 investors before you find uh, the one who actually believes and is willing to, you know, willing to write the check. If you can't do that, if you're not prepared for that work, um, you really shouldn't do it. It's kind of, I won't say it's like being a politician, but you have to have some of the same skills, you know, like you have to be willing to get up there and give that stump speech. And it has to be fun. You have to like investors on some level. Like it's got to be like a good give and take. Otherwise, it's just not going to work. You're going to deplete your energy stores and, and you will not be able to bring the heat when it matters. Yeah. Now for hydro. You know, for the people that are listening, you know, that would love to get a better understanding on the scope and size of the business. Anything that you feel comfortable sharing, like number of employees or anything else? Yeah, so we're privately held uh, and we don't share all of the information, but we have just about 95 employees. Uh, we did a RIF last, last July and we did another smaller RIF in uh, January. They're always super painful uh, to do, but it is this extraordinary opportunity to right-size the business. And we have a, a set, you know, a recurring revenue stream that's very substantial. And it was crucial to get, we, we were building for growth mode, you know, like we had signed a SPAC deal, we were ready to do a SPAC. 
we were so fortunate we, we pulled up before we did this back. And so it was right-sizing our team so that we were prepared to operate with the goal of profitability rather than hyper growth. And that's just, it's a very different skill set, a very different team. And we've made that pivot, um, I think, in, in my opinion and in the board's opinion, really, really successfully. Now, imagine if you were to go to sleep tonight, Bruce, and you wake up in a world where the vision of Hydro is fully realized. What does that world look like? We have uh, millions and millions of people who can't wait to use their hydro rowing device or their uh, strength device every day. It gives them uh, not just like that physical bump that you get from exercise, but it gives them, you know, human connection and experience of nature and they get the hydro high every day. And as a result, when they go spend time with their family or they go to work, they're a little bit kinder, they're a little bit more generous with their time and, and they trust people more. And that to me would be just fabulous and um, serving the exactly the right workout to the right person at the right time. And that kind of personalization so that people get what they need, no matter where they're from, no matter their walk of life, no matter if they live in a tiny apartment in downtown Manhattan or, you know, a, a suburban house in Kansas City. Uh, really bringing people together like that would be so exciting. It is That's so exciting. Incredible. I love it. Now, imagine if I put you into a time machine and I bring you back in time. You know, back in time, you know, for you to be able to have a chat with that younger Bruce, maybe that younger Bruce that, uh, you know, was starting to be independent and, you know, you were now dreaming about doing things of your own and, and you could see the impact now of money and how you're able to, to get money and your relationship with money. If you were able to give that younger Bruce one piece of advice before launching a business, what would that be and why, given what you know now? Buy Bitcoin. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, get about, you know, four or 500,000 Bitcoin for a pizza. Right. <laughs> the Winklevoss twins actually are investors in the company, by the by. Uh, okay. so I would say I, you know, I wish I could have got here with less struggle and pain, but not that, you know, like pain is uh, relative, like, you know, I've had a, uh, really really, really, I've, I have loved all of the things that I've uh, done with my life. And I think that the thing that I would say is, um, you can always go faster, like just go faster. Um, there's a lot of waffling and a lot of people who try and keep things the same. And our job as entrepreneurs is to change things. And there's a basic conflict there. And it's amazing. Like the, the more I have learned about the force of will to accelerate. And that idea of velocity, like, don't dilly dally. Like, if you're going to do it, do it, do it faster. Anything you can do, take two days off the timeline, take a week off, take a year off, make a radical decision and jump in with both feet and find out that it fails faster. It's, um, I, I see that, uh, that impact, you know, the, the older I get, the more precious time is. And I really try and accelerate in every dimension. And honestly, if we hadn't accelerated in that, um, in that way with this company, we wouldn't be here. You know, we just wouldn't have made it. Now, for the people that are listening, Bruce, that would love to reach out and say hi. What is the best way for them to do so? Uh, find me on LinkedIn or send me an email at bruce at hydro.com. I have an incredibly easy email. And I actually, I, I try and answer everybody. Uh, people have been so kind to me 
in fundraising and in introductions and uh, giving me advice that has literally changed my life. Um, I try and do the same. And I have a heavy debt to fill there. So uh, really happy to respond to people. Amazing. Well, Bruce, thank you so much for being on the Dealmaker Show. It has been an honor to have you with us today. Thanks very much. Really great. If you like the show, make sure that you hit that subscribe button. If you could leave a review as well, that would be fantastic. And if you got any value, either from this episode or from the show itself, share it with a friend. Perhaps they also appreciate it. So also remember that if you need any help, whether it is with your fundraising efforts or with selling your business, you can reach me at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. You've reached the end of another episode of the Dealmakers podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to alejandrocremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.